Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. Hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. So let's get into it. We're going to start off first with, unfortunately, an obituary from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Robert Clary, Holocaust survivor, Hogan's Hero star. Actor spent 31 months in Nazi concentration camps and lost 12 family members by Lynn Elber. Robert Clary, a French-born survivor of Nazi concentration camps during World War II who played a feisty prisoner of war in the improbable 1960s sitcom Hogan's Heroes, has died at his home in Beverly Hills. Clary died Wednesday of natural causes, his niece Brenda Hancock said. He was 96. He never let those horrors defeat him, Hancock said of Clary's wartime experiences as a youth. He never let them take the joy out of his life. He tried to spread that joy to others through his singing and his dancing and his painting. When he recounted uh, his life to, uh, to students, Clary told them, Don't ever hate, Hancock said. He didn't let hate overcome the beauty in this world. Hogan's Heroes, in which Allied soldiers in a POW camp bested their clownish German overseers with espionage schemes, played the war strictly for laughs during its 1965-71 run. The 5'1 Clary sported a beret and a sardonic smile as French Captain Louis Lebeau. Clary was the last uh, survivor, uh, uh, surviving original star of that sitcom that included Bob Crane, Richard Dawson, Larry Hovis and Ivan Dixon as the prisoners. Werner Klemper and John Banner, who played their captors, were both European Jews who had fled Nazi persecution before the war. Clara began his career as a nightclub singer and appeared on stage in musicals including Irma La Dolce and Cabaret. After Hogan's Heroes, Clara's TV work included the soap operas The Young and the Restless, Days of Our Lives, and the bold and the beautiful. He considered his musical theater to the highlights of his career. I love to go to the theater at uh, quarter, quarter of eight, put the stage makeup on and entertain, he said in a 2014 interview. He remained publicly silent about his wartime experience until 1980, when Clary said he was provoked to speak by those who denied or sought to diminish the orchestrated effort by Nazi Germany to exterminate Jews. A documentary about Clary's childhood and years of horror at Nazi hands, Robert Clary A5714, A Memoir of Liberation, was released in 1985. Clary was tattooed with the alphameric A5714 as a concentration camp prisoner. They write books and articles in magazines denying the Holocaust, making a mockery of the six million Jews, including a million and a half children, who died in the gas chambers and ovens, he told the Associated Press in a 1985 interview. Twelve of his immediate family members, his parents and ten siblings, were killed under the Nazis, Clary wrote in a biography posted on his website. In 1997, he was among dozens of Holocaust survivors whose portraits and stories were included in The Triumphant Spirit, a book by photographer Nick Del Calzo. I beg the next generation not to do what people have done for centuries, hate others because of their skin, shape of their eyes, or religious preference, Clary said at the time. Retired from acting, Clary remained in good health and busy with family, friends, and painting.
The actor born Robert uh, Witt Weiderman in Paris in March of 1926 was the youngest of 14 children. He was 16 when he and most of his family were taken by the Nazis. In the documentary, Clary recalled a happy childhood until he and his family were forced from their Paris apartment and put into a crowded cattle car that carried them to concentration camps. Nobody knew where we were going, Clary said. We were not human beings anymore. After 31 months in captivity in several concentration camps, he was liberated from the Buchenwald death camp by American troops. His youth and ability to work had kept him alive, Clary said. Returning to Paris, where he was reunited with two older sisters who had avoided the death camps, Clary worked as a singer and recorded songs and became popular in America. After coming to the United States in 1949, he moved from club dates and recording to, broad and recording to Broadway musicals, including New Faces of 1952, and then to movies. He appeared in the films in films including 1952's Thief of Damascus, A New Kind of Love in 1963, and The Hindenburg in 1975. He didn't feel uneasy about the comedy on Hogan's Heroes, despite the tragedy of his family's devastating war experience. In Style Like 13, Hogan's team of prisoners always outwitted the bumbling, ger the bumbling Germans. True, they were in a camp, but they were not treated the same as a concentration camp, he told the Los Angeles Times in, in 2003, 2013. It was a stalag. You received letters and packages. After the series went off the air, we remained close to two, uh, two of the other actors on the show whose lives had been, turned, had been appended by the Nazis. German-born Klimper, who won Emmys as the officious Colonel Klink, and the Austrian-born Banner, who played the befuddled Sergeant Schultz. Both were Jews who had fled the Nazis before the war, but John lost a lot of his family, said, Claire, said Clary. Clary married Natalie Cantor, daughter of singer Eddie Cantor, in 1965. She died in 1997. That was Robert Clary, Holocaust survivor, Hogan's Hero star, by Lynn Elber, from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 20th, 2022. I've seen nothing, I know nothing... Okay, we've got a couple of Israel articles now. This first two, actually, are from the same world section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Israel fears tension at World Cup. Soccer fans are asked to keep a low pro profile while visiting Qatar, where the Iranian team will be present. From the Associated Press. Tel Aviv. Israel is urging its citizens traveling to the FIFA World Cup this week to be less visibly Israel. The unprecedented influx of thousands of Israeli fans descending on Doha, Qatar for the first World Cup of the, in the Middle East has raised fears of an embarrassing diplomatic crisis between the countries with no formal diplomatic relations. Israel's warning is part of a foreign ministry campaign launched Wednesday to educate the nation's soccer fans about laws and customs in the conservative Muslim country. The campaign website, in Hebrew and Arabic, outlines a potential minefield avail uh, awaiting Israeli tourists, who don't have a reputation for being discreet, in Qatar, a country that criminalizes homosexuality, bans drugs, and restricts alcohol consumption. Like many Gulf Arab citizens, 
including those in the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which normally normalized relations with, with Israel in 2020, Qataris have a history of support for the Palestinian cause. Further complicating matter, matters, fans and officials from Israel's arch enemy Iran will be at the tournament in Qatar, a 40-minute flight from Iran. The campaign asks Israelis to hide any Israeli symbols, presumably a reference to Israeli flags and the Star of David. The Iranian team will be in the World Cup as we estimate that tens of thousands of fans will follow it and there will be other fans from Gulf countries that we don't have a diplomatic relationship with, said Liar Haddad, a senior Israeli diplomat. Downplay your Israeli presence and Israeli identity for the sake of your personal security, Haddad said, addressing the Israeli fans. In a landmark deal, Israelis without foreign foreign uh, passports I can travel to Qatar for the World Cup despite the lack of ties between the countries. Qatar announced last week that it will allow direct flights from Tel Aviv to Doha for Israelis as well as for Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza whose ability to travel depends on Israeli government approval. As part of the agreement, Qatar will permit Israeli diplomats through a private travel company to provide cons consular support to Israelis during the tournament. The diplomats left for Qatar on Wednesday. Nearly 4,000 Israeli and 8,000 Palestinian fans have an entry visa to Qatar for the tournament. The ministry expects as many as 20,000 Israelis could ultimately attend the World Cup. Soccer is something many Israelis see as essential, Halat said. We are getting ready for the many Israelis who will show up and at least some of them who will need our help. When it comes to LGBTQ Israeli fans attending the tournament, the foreign ministry website has curt advice, not in public. The website also warns against public drunkenness, which is illegal in Qatar. During the World Cup, alcohol will be available only in designated areas such as hotels and special fan zones. The campaign also offers tips to Israelis struggling to find accommodation because of the tight squeeze in the tiny emirate. It cautions against bringing prohibited drugs, including cannabis, uh, getting into brawls and using foul language, all of which can have legal repercussions in Qatar. Israeli officials expressed hope that a positive, hassle-free Israeli presence in Qatar could advance Israel's ambitions to further integrate into the region after the normalization deals with two of Doha's Gulf Arab neighbors. We very much hope things will go smoothly, smoothly Highlight said. That was Israel Fears Tension at World Cup from the Associated Press. Another little article here is called Court, Netanyahu Was Defamed, also from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert defamed his successor Benjamin Netanyahu and must pay damages to Netanyahu and his family, a court ruled Monday. The high-profile defamation suit kicked off earlier this year, pitting Olmert, the only Israeli Prime Minister to ever go to prison, against Netanyahu, the country's longest-serving leader who was ousted from the Premier's office last year but is on the verge of returning to it. Netanyahu sued Omar for remarks made in 2021 after a series of innocuous, inconclusive parliamentary elections. At the time, Netanyahu refused calls to step down while on trial for corruption charges. 
the Tel Aviv Magistrate's Court dismissed Omar's claim that he was expressing an opinion in good faith when he said that Netanyahu exhibited crazy behavior and that his wife and son have suffered from mental illness. The court ruled that Omar's remarks on Democrat TV in April 2021 constituted defamation of character and ordered him to pay damages of about $18,000 to Netanyahu and his family, as well as legal costs. Omar can appeal the decision. That was Court Netanyahu was defamed from the Associated Press, all from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Okay, now we move on to an opinion article here from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Israel to Berkeley to Twitter. When one group of law students sought to exclude certain speakers, an internal dispute swirled into a huge online debate by Erwin Chemerinsky. The great complexity of free speech issues on campus was revealed this semester at Berkeley Law School. How are the free speech rights of a student group not to invite speakers with particular views to be balanced against the desire to have all viewpoints expressed and have no one feel excluded? Although the legal and constitutional answers are relatively straightforward, dealing with it within an institution is a different matter, especially on deeply divisive questions that end up mobilizing the social media outrage machine with all of its distortions and background of menace. Here is what happened. In August, a law student group at Berkeley Law, the Law Students for Justice in Palestine, asked other student groups to adopt a bylaw excluding any speaker who express and continue to hold views of host, sponsor, promote events in support of Zionism, the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine. This was very upsetting to many of our students and faculty, though the great majority were unaware of the contro- this controversy. For most Jews, including me, the existence of Israel and Zionism are as an, an important part of our Jewish identity and the bylaw was felt as anti-Semitism. I wrote a letter to the leaders of all student groups explaining that while I strongly support their free speech rights, I thought the bylaw was inconsistent with our values as a law school, our commitment that all viewpoints be expressed, and our desire that every student feel included in all aspects of the school. There was a brief flurry of media attention, but the issue quickly faded. Within the law school conversation, within the law school conversations continued about uh, how to best balance free speech rights with maintaining a culture of mutual respect and diversity of opinions. Then, in late September, an article appeared in the Jewish Journal with the headline "Berkeley Develops Jewish Free Zones." This was nonsense, and the article is filled with distortions. There are no Jewish free zones at UC Berkeley or Berkeley Law. The law school has an explicit policy that every student group and every student event must be open to all students. I know of no instance in which any speaker has been excluded based on religion or viewpoints about Israel. But the Jewish Journal story went viral. The image of Berkeley Law could not be further from reality. Many lamented the absence of speakers supporting Israel, never acknowledging programs at the law school and the campus such as the Helen Diller Institute for Jewish Law and the Israel uh, Studies and Israel Studies, which frequently host speakers and visiting scholars from Israel. What should school administrators do in this situation? 
many demand that the law school adopt the position that student groups cannot exclude speakers based on their viewpoint and that the student groups and uh, that adopted the bylaw be punished. But this cannot be reconciled with the First Amendment or even common sense. Of course, student groups can decide what speakers to include based on their views. Obviously, a college Republicans group could decide only to invite conservative speakers. To require student groups to invite speakers of views they loathe would violate the First Amendment as a form of compelled speech. At the same time, no student group can exclude any speaker on the basis of sex, religion, uh, race, or sexual orientation. That would violate law school and campus policy as well as state and federal law. Such discrimination would be punished. But because the situation at Berkeley Law is about choosing speakers based on their viewpoints, the student groups have the First Amendment right to reject, to reject views they oppose. This would be true for a women's law students association deciding to invite only speakers who support abortion rights, and that effectively excludes, excluded many Catholic speakers, which uh, might uh, well make students on that, of that religion feel uncomfortable. This is not to deny that the effect of that the effect of the bylaw, if it were followed, would be to exclude many Jewish speakers and would make Jewish students feel uncomfortable being part of some groups. This is why I condemn it. I wish student groups would not adopt such policies, but a public university cannot prohibit them. All of this would be difficult enough without outside agitators seizing on this and targeting our students for harassment and threats. Some of our students of color. Muslim students and Jewish students have received hateful and threatening messages. A right-wing group has had a truck going around the law school with an awful billboard. One said, if you want a Jewish-free Berkeley, raise your right hand, with a large picture of Hitler. Another truck listed the names of students from organizations that adopted the bylaw under the banner, Berkeley Law's Anti-Semitic Class of 2023. It is despicable to target students in this way, and it, and it understandably has caused many students to feel unsafe being on campus. What started as an internal matter, we were, when, where we were deepening the conversation among our students, faculty, and staff about an enormously difficult issue and about how best to support one another, now requires our campus public safety professionals to monitor threats and provide security support for our targeted students. Not only has the marketplace of ideas failed to generate accurate discussions of our situation, it has created a truly dangerous environment. <clears throat> what we have been experiencing could happen on any campus and reflects the difficult free speech issues confronting our society. But there are no easy, easy paths to take. But I am concerned that as campus administrators, we have to constantly express our values our commitment that educational institutions be placed where all views can be expressed and where all students feel included, but making that a reality seems harder than ever before. It was Israel to Berkeley to Twitter by Erwin Chemerinsky from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 20, 2022. Erwin Chemerinsky is a contributing writer to opinion and dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. His latest book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. All right, here's our final uh, Israel story for this show from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 24th, 2022. 
Twin Blasts in Jerusalem Kill Israeli Teen Injure 18 by Alan Bernstein and Taya Goldenberg. Jerusalem. Two blasts went off near the bus stops in Jerusalem at the height of morning rush hour Wednesday, killing a Canadian-Israeli teenager and injuring at least 18 people in what police said were attacks by Palestinians. The first explosion occurred near a typically crowded bus stop on the edge of the city. The second went off about a half an hour later in Ramot, a settlement in the city's north. Israeli police say the blast left four people uh, seriously wounded, one of them fatally. The victim was identified as Arya Shupak, 15, who was heading to a Jewish seminary when the blast went off, according to a notice announcing his death. Shupak was also a Canadian citizen, according to Canadian Ambassador Lisa Stadelbauer. Tensions between the Israelis and Palestinians have been surging for months amid nightly Israeli raids in the occupied West Bank prompted by a spate of deadly attacks against Israelis that killed 19 people in the spring. There, have, there has also been an uptick in recent attacks in Palestinian attacks, recent weeks in Palestinian attacks. Israeli troops shot dead two Palestinians after what Israel said was an armed attack in the occupied West Bank. The violence occurred hours after Palestinian militants stormed a West Bank hospital and carried out an Israeli citizen seeking treatment there after a car accident, according to the young man's father. The incident could further ratchet up tensions. Outgoing Israeli Prime Minister Yad Lapid said authorities would track down the attackers. They can run, they can hide, it won't help them, he said in a statement. We will punish them to the fullest extent of the law. The developments took place as former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is holding coalition talks after national elections and is likely to return to power as head of what's expected to be Israel's most right-wing government. Itamar Ben-Givur, an extremist lawmaker who has called for the death penalty for Palestinian attackers and who is set to become the minister in charge of police under Netanyahu, said the attack meant Israel needed to take a tougher stance on Palestinian violence. We must exact a price from terror, he said from the scene of the first explosion. We must return to be in control of Israel to restore terror deterrence against terror. Police who were searching for the suspected attackers said their initial findings show that shrapnel-laden explosive devices were placed at the two sites. The police said it deployed additional offers to the city in the aftermath of the blasts. Video from shortly after the initial blast show, uh, showed it, uh, debris strewn along the sidewalks and its ambulance sirens, sirens, as ambulance sirens blared. A bus in remote was parked with uh, what looked like shrapnel marks. It was a crazy explosion, Yosef Haim Gabe, a medic who was at the scene of the first blast, told Israel's army radio. I saw people with wounds bleeding all over the place. While Palestinians have carried out stabbings, car rammings, and shootings in recent years, bombing attacks have become very rare since the end of a Palestinian uprising nearly two decades ago. The U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem condemned the violence, as did the European Union's ambassador, Dimitar Tanschev. The Islamic militant group Hamas, which rules the Gaza Strip and once carried out suicide bombings against Israelis, praised the attack perpetrators but stopped short of claiming responsibility. The occupation is reaping the price of its crimes 
and aggression against our people, Hamas spokesman Abd al-Latif al-Quinua said. Israel said in, that in the response to the blast, it was closing two West Bank crossings to Palestinians near the West Bank city of Jenin, a militant stronghold. In Jenin late Tuesday, militants entered a hospital and removed the Israeli teen wounded in a car accident. The young man, 17, was from Israel's Druze minority. His father, who was in the hospital room with him, said the militants disconnected him from hospital equipment and took him. The Israeli military said the teenager was already dead when he was taken. It was something horrendous. It was something that was inhumane, Hussam uh, Pharaoh told the boy's father told the Israel's news site, Inet. He was still alive, and they took him in front of my eyes, and I couldn't do anything. A Druze community leader told Inet that talks were underway on the, boy, the body's return to the family. Lapid said the militants would pay a heavy price if the body was not returned. Palestinian officials either declined to comment or did not respond to requests for comment. More than 130 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli-Palestinian fighting in the West Bank and East Jerusalem this year, making it the deadliest since 2006. The Israeli army said, the mo said most of the Palestinians killed have been militants, but stone-throwing youths protesting Israeli army uh, incursions and others not involved in confrontations have also been killed. At least eight Israelis have been killed in the most recent wave of Palestinian attacks. The Israeli military said Wednesday that Palestinian gunmen opened fire on forces escorting worshippers to a controversial shrine in the West Bank city of Nablus overnight. The troops fired back, killing two people. That was twin blasts in Jerusalem killed Israeli teen Inger 18 by Alan Bernstein and Tia Goldenberg from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, November 24, 2022. Bernstein and Goldenberg write for the Associated Press and reported from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, respectively. AP writers Isaac Sharp in Jerusalem, Eleanor H. Reich in Tel Aviv, and Jalal Batwedel in Ramallah, West Bank, contributed to this report. Okay, so now going back home, here's an article regarding a Jewish lawmaker, countywide, who is officially leaving. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23, 2022, Kewell Bows Out, A Fighter Leaving the Arena by Rebecca Ellis Three decades ago, Sheila Kewell entered political life in a bulletproof vest. Kewell said she, she needed all the protection she could find in 1994 as she campaigned for a state assembly seat that would make her California's first openly gay state legislature. After death threats continued through her primary, then Assembly Speaker Willie Brown assigned someone to guard her at public events. This year, as Kuehl prepared to leave elected office after two terms on the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, she would once again find herself escorted by men and women in bulletproof vests. Only this time, they were not there to assist her. They were there to search her Santa Monica home, part of a long, simmering, criminal investigation spearheaded by outgoing Sheriff Alex Villanueva. The deputies took her phones, computer, and some old The Many of the Many Loves of Dobie Gillis tapes, a vestige of Kuehl's days as a teenage actress. Like many of Villanueva's critics, Kuehl has condemned the search as an unabashed attempt by the sheriff to silence his opposition. 
but the longtime politician said she also saw it as an oddly fitting bookend to her 28 years in public office. My very, very best friend, Tori Osborne, actually summed it up the best. Huell said in an interview referring to her senior strategist, she said, you started your political career fighting bullies, you've ended your political career fighting bullies. The 81-year-old supervisor's time in the arena is now coming to a close. Tuesday's board meeting was her final as county supervisor for District 3, a sprawling 431-square-mile swath of Los Angeles County that spans the San Fernando Valley and much of the coast. I feel like I have been so fortunate for these last almost 30 years in public office because I am paid to try to achieve justice. Paid, said Kula at a a morning board session uh, held in her honor. I can't imagine a more wonderful way to spend a work life spend a wonderful more uh, work life than, than than to be told here's a check and a kind of a blank check go and do good beyond a small pile of bouquets Kuehl addressed an intimate audience Tuesday composed of mostly of county employees and department heads each had been handed posters of Kuehl's face to wave near the end of the meeting they gave Kuehl a science fiction buff an $810 gift card to Barnes & Noble. Kuehl's colleagues all used Tuesday's meeting as a chance to commend her on her record at championing the county's most marginalized residents. Board Chair Holly J. Mitchell promised to continue making headway on the progressive path that Kuehl started the county down eight years ago. Supervisor Catherine Barker called Kuehl a straight shooter laser-focused on on lifting up foster youths, women, and LGBT constituents. Supervisor Janice Hahn, who video-conferenced into the meeting, said Kuehl was tireless, routinely called her on Sunday nights so the two could spend the dwindling hours of their weekend scouring the motions of the board uh, would discuss in the weeks ahead. All remembered Kuehl as a fighter. Of the legacy that you have left for future generations, for LGBTQ, for transgender, for all those entities that we've already discussed, they are going to know that a champion was here, said an emotional supervisor, Hilda Solis, who teared up as she outlined her decades-long history with Cube, dating back to their time as legislators in Sacramento. On her eight years as a sup- over her eight years as a supervisor, Kuehl earned a reputation as a fierce advocate for criminal justice reform and environmental protections. She helped earmark hundreds of millions of dollars to transition the county away from jails. She championed Measure W, which created a tax to help pay for projects that conserve stormwater. Earlier this year, she had pushed through an ordinance to curb the use of single-use plastics over fierce pushback from plastic and restaurant industry groups. Kuehl said she's confident some of these progressive policy priorities will live on in Supervisor-elect Lindsay Horvath, who will succeed her as the supervisor for the 3rd District. Horvath, who watched Tuesday's meeting from the side benches, will be sworn in December 5th. Kuehl is ready. I think it's okay to retire when you're 81, she said. There was Kuehl bows out a fighter leaving the arena by Rebecca Ellis from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23, 2022. All right, we go now to another opinion article, something different, from the 
Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23, 2022. Five years later, the hashtag MeToo reckoning continues. Harvey Weinstein is on trial in L.A. and she said it showcases the journalism that exposed him by Robin Abkarian. What a, a bracing coincidence. On the fifth anniversary of the hashtag MeToo movement's explosion, disgraced movie mogul and convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein is on trial again for rape, this time in Los Angeles. And she said a feature film about the New York Times reporters who exposed his decades of sexual assault has just opened in theaters to generally positive reviews. Both come at a moment when the intensity unleashed by the hashtag MeToo movement seems to be whining in the public imagination and the powerful men who were toppled like bowling pins five years ago strike have mostly faded into obscurity. Where are they now? Who cares? In the Los Angeles trial, Weinstein's attorney, Mark Worksman, felt emboldened enough to describe alleged rapes as transactional sex and used a misogynistic term to describe the many aspiring actresses his client is alleged to have assaulted, including California first partner Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Seventeen years ago, when she was a struggling actor, Newsom testified. Weinstein raped her at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. She also testified that she faked an orgasm to get an assault, the assault over with. This is a survival strate- strategy, not consent. Worksman, who asked her to reenact her fake climax, suggested she was just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. I hope jurors consider this outlandish remark as the move of a desperate defense attorney, but sexist attitudes die hard. Many a rape case in jury has returned a not guilty verdict because of what a victim was wearing. You have to look the way she was dressed. A defense lawyer told the jury in a 2018 Irish rape case. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. The defendant was acquitted, which sparked a backlash. Women posted photos of their underwear with the hashtag, This is not consent. I would suggest when the power imbalance is as lopsided as it was between Weinstein, then one of the most important players in Hollywood uh, and the many uh, aspiring actors and assistants he assaulted, there is no transaction at play, at least not in the traditional sense. Weinstein punished women who successfully fought him off and some who were not able, not able to. He derailed careers. He paid large amounts of money to numerous victims and made them sign non-disclosure agreements. Gaging so many women meant he was free to victimize again and again. The transaction essentially was was submit to me and shut up about it or never work again. He took my voice when I was just about to start finding it, says one of his victims in She Said. Rather than focus on Weinstein, She Said, which hews closely to Jody Cantor and Megan Twoey's book of the same name, centers on the experiences of women and their struggle to overcome the entirely justifiable fear of going public than being slimed as transactional bimbos. I was moved by the empathy and kindness shown to Weinstein's victims by reporter Cantor, played by Zoe Kazan. She and her reporting, her reporting partner, Twohe, played by Carrie Mulligan, feared that if none of the women who told horrifying stories allowed their names to be printed, the story might not see the light of day. But they did not coerce or cajole. 
they allowed their sources to make their own decisions. And the film's emotional high point comes when the actor, Ashley Judd, who plays herself, decides to go public. She is in the lead of their explosive story, which was published on October 5, 2017. Days later, the New York published Ronan Farrow's equally damning Weinstein investigation. Afterward, a deluge of women, at least a hundred according to New York Magazine in 2020, stepped forward to say they were abused by Weinstein. One of the great results of Hashtag Me Too has been the increasing willingness of lawmakers to ban the use of non-disclosure agreements. One of Weinstein's victims, Zelda Perkins, co-founded a global anti-NDA campaign, Can't Buy My Silence. She played a crucial role in the New York Times investigation breaking the NDA she had signed decades earlier with Weinstein. Last year, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill that bans NDAs for all forms of workplace discrimination, including sexual harassment. Many other states have done the same. A federal bill, the Speak Out Act, which bans non-disclosure clauses in employment contracts as opposed to after-the-fact settlements, was passed by both branches of Congress and awaits President Biden's signature. In practice, what laws like California mean, mean, what Californians mean is that victims who receive settlements have the right to publicly discuss their cases. If they don't want to talk about it, they don't have to, but they no longer are subject to being gagged. It puts the power in their hands. And men, and some anyway, are reevaluating their own roles in enabling terrible workplace behavior. Last week, the Los Angeles Times published an essay by Erwin Reiter, who was the Weinstein Company's longtime executive vice president of accounting and financial reporting. A pivotal uh, character in She Said, played by actor Zach Greiner, Reiter gave the New York Times an internal company memo that confirmed Weinstein's toxic behavior, past and present. The outrageous way Weinstein's lawyer treated Jennifer Siebel Newsom moved Ryder to write the essay. I hope that the defense's victim-blaming tactics will fail in this era, he wrote. Survivors bear enormous burdens. They should not have to speak out alone, too. Men in positions like mine can and must boulder that truth. Five years out, it looks as though the hashtag MeToo movement has helped the world shift on its axis. We owe those changes to dogged investigative journalists and the incredibly brave women who decide to speak truth to power, consequences be damned. That was five years later. The hashtag MeToo reckoning continues by Robin Abkarian from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. All right, and so now we got a few articles regarding the big story with uh, this past this past week, the return of Bob Iger as the head of Disney. So let's bring you up to speed. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 21st, 2021, longtime Disney executive returns for a second act. Less than a year since his exit, Robert Iger re- re- uh, to replace his successor, Bob Chapek, as CEO by Meg James and Ryan Founder. And a blockbuster development. Walt Disney Company's former, longtime chief Chief Robert Iger is returning to lead the Burbank Entertainment giant. The Sunday night announcement by the Disney board made shortly before Disney Plus began its high-profile livestream of the Elton John concert at Dodger Stadium stunned Hollywood. The switch comes 
less than a year since Iger said his long goodbye after a storybook 15-year run as chief executive. Uh, Disney's board said he had agreed to serve two additional years as chief executive. Iger takes over for his handpicked successor, Bob Chappick, who suffered a number of setbacks during his nearly three years as chief executive. Iger, in a statement, said he was thrilled to return for, to his longtime home. It's not clear what triggered the board's decision, but directors were said to be increasingly impatient with the company's shaky financial performance and organizational changes Chappick made at the Mouse House, insiders said. The board came to the conclusion that they, they were losing the heart and soul of the company, said one longtime Disney observer who was not authorized to co uh, comment publicly. This may have seemed quick, but the creative, uh, the creative community has been saying that it was just a matter of time. The situation just wasn't tenable. Disney's marquee streaming service has groaned despite intense competition, but it doesn't make money. The company recently disclosed that it has lost $1.5 billion in the July to September financial quarter on its streaming service business, businesses, including Disney Plus and investors, have been growing restless, driving down the company's stock. Chapek declared that the fourth quarter represented a peak of Disney's losses in streaming as the company prepared to raise prices and add a Disney Plus tire with advertising. Just days later, Chapek sent a memo to Disney leadership calling for cost-cutting measures, including layoffs and a hiring freeze. Disney stock has dropped more than 40% so far this year. It ended trading Friday at $91.80 after starting that year at nearly $160 a share. The company is currently valued at $164 billion. Over his career as CEO, Iger 71 grew the company's market capitalization from $48 billion to $257 billion. Also unpopular was Chappick's reorganization of Disney in the fall of 2020 that consolidated power under a business executive, Kareem Daniel, and stripped away much of the financial decision-making by high-level creative executives. The change fostered resentments because some of the executives felt their creative autonomy was taken away, according to several Disney insiders who were not authorized to speak publicly. In fact, Iger and Chappick refuting for much of last year, with Chappick feeling that Iger's long shadow and extended farewell, he remained as chairman until December, was not allowing him to run the company as he saw fit, according to people knowledgeable of the situation. We thank Bob Chappick for his service to Disney over his long career, including navigating the company through the unprecedented challenges of the pandemic, Susan Arnold, Disney's chairman of the board, said in a statement. The board has concluded that as Disney embarks on an increasingly complex period of in industry transformation, Bob Iger is uniquely situated for the, to lead the company through this pivotal period. Iger would have a mandate... Uh, would have a mandate from the board to set strategic direction for renewed growth and to help the board to groom a successor who will take over in two years, the company said. The CEO shuffle was stunning because it came five months after the board extended Chappick's contract an additional three years, signing a strong leadership during the pandemic. But the industry has become more tumultuous since last spring. 
Media companies throughout the industry are worried about a potential recession and advertising commitments have softened, a troubling harbinger for more choppy waters ahead. A recession could deliver another blow to the company's sprawling theme park business, just as it is mounting a comeback from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on tourism. Chappick's leadership had been under a microscope after a series of controversial moves and missteps, including a legal battle with star Scarlett Johansson. In 2020 and 2021, when she accused Disney of cheating her out of box office bonuses from Marvel's Black Widow by releasing it on Disney Plus for a $30 charge at the same time as its theatrical release. The lawsuit was later settled, but the dispute brought unwelcome publicity to Disney and its leadership. Most contract disputes are resolved through negotiation or arbitration, not through litigation. Then there was a public spat that this year with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which prompted the governor to target laws that favored Disney's business in the state. Chapek also fired the, uh, the polished head of Disney's vast television unit, Peter Rice, without providing a clear reason why. Less than two weeks ago, Chapek signaled that deep cost-cutting was coming to Disney further rattling the beleaguered troops. An Indiana native, Chapek became chief executive after a long career at Disney overseeing divisions including home video, consumer products, and theme parks. I'm deeply honored to be asked to again lead this remarkable team with a clear mission focused on creative excellence to inspire generations through unrivaled, bold storytelling, Iger said, said Sunday in a statement. I am extremely optimistic for the future of this great company and thrilled to be asked by the board to return as its CEO. Iger made his mark on the company with several key gambles that paid off handsomely. In 2006, Iger led Disney to buy Pixar Animation Studios from Steve Jobs in order to rescue Disney's flagging animation business. That deal was followed by, by the 2009 deal to purchase Marvel Entertainment, which has resulted in a virtually unbroken streak of box office winners, produced by Kevin Feige. In 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm from George Lucas and relaunched the Star Wars film franchise with a new trilogy. Disney and its incomparable brands and franchises hold a special place in the heart of so many people around the globe, most especially in the hearts of our employees whose dedication to this company and its mission is an inspiration, Iger said. Iger may have departed as executive chairman by the, at the end of 2021, but his presence continued to loom over the company. The industry hung on his every word as he opined on the state and, fur, and future of entertainment and media at industry conferences, making it seem that his retirement had never really taken hold. Speaking at the Code Conference in September, Iger sent ripples through the TV business when he declared traditional cable and satellite TV is marching toward a great precipice and it will be pushed off. He also gave a glum prediction for the theatrical movie business, saying he didn't think box office would ever return to pre-pandemic levels. That was longtime Disney executive returns for a second act by Meg James and Ryan Founder. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 21st, 2022. Okay, first follow-up article from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Behind the swift ouster of Disney's CEO, Bob Chapek's contract was extended in June. Five months later, he's out. What happened? Five months ago, Bob Chapek seemed firmly in control. 
While Disney Company's board of directors in June extended Chappuck's contract as chief executive of the legendary company for an additional three years, noting his leadership was key to keeping Disney on the successful path it is on today. But on Sunday, Disney's directors abruptly ditched Chappuck, reinstalling his widely admired predecessor, Bob Iger, which elicited cheers from Wall Street and Disney faithful. What happened? Interviews with nearly a dozen Disney insiders, analysts, and people close to the board suggest that Chappuck's problems had been mounting almost since the day he took Disney's, Disney's reins in late February of 2020. Within weeks, the economic environmental environment had foundly shifted as COVID-19 pandemic health precautions closed businesses, including theme parks, cruise lines, and movie theaters that, that had long buttressed the Burbank company. He also tried to expand Disney's reach in streaming, a costly bet. More debilitating, Insider said, was a series of miscalculations and missteps that undermined Chappuck's leadership and ultimately led to an unshakable loss in confidence. Tensions came to a head Friday when key Disney board members, including Chair Susan Arnold, approached Iger and invited him back as chief executive. The job he excelled at for 15 years, according to a person familiar with the matter who was not authorized to comment publicly. Disney's board moved swiftly because of concerns that Iger, 71, was considering a position to run another entertainment venture, according to two people with knowledge, uh, and to two of the uh, knowledgeable people. Not wanting to lose out, the board quickly struck a two-year agreement with Iger who late Sunday sent an email to announce his return to Disney employees, shocking some who said they had to check their Iger email twice to make sure it was real. The shuffle brought into full view the latest chapter of Disney's long-running succession drama. Bob Iger's shoes were impossible to fill, said Jeffrey Cole, director of USC Center for the Digital Future. Chappuck wasn't as diplomatic or elegant or smooth as Iger. He just wasn't central casting's idea of the CEO who would follow Bob Iger. Chappuck was not available for an interview. The short-tenured CEO is expected to leave Disney with at least $23 million, according to Bloomberg News. His contract, which had been scheduled to run to mid-2025, entitled him to collect a salary for the full duration of his agreed-upon term. Chappuck will also collect his Disney pension. He's worked at the company nearly 30 years, and if Disney stock uh, recovers, he could reap even more. Chappuck 62 rose through the ranks, working in the company's home video division during the era of VHS tapes and rising to lead its consumer products unit and later its theme parks business. There, Chappuck oversaw a number of major projects, including the opening of the company's new theme park in Shanghai and the debut of the Star Wars theme lands in California and Florida. Several executives who worked for him described him as a well-meaning focused on streamlining the company to succeed in a more challenging environment. Executives interviewed for this story pointed to several key moments that they said helped seal Chappuck's fate. When Chappuck was named CEO in February of 2020, Disney's board elevated Iger to executive chairman. Iger indicated he would relinquish the day-to-day -day operations to his former lieutenant and focus on working with creative types. Then the pandemic hit. Chappuck was in the job less than two months when his authority was diminished. 
and April of 2020, as the full ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic were emerging, Iger told Ben Smith, then New York Times media columnist, that he was still in the picture. Iger said he was actively helping Bob Chappick and the company contend with the pandemic, particularly since I ran the company for 15 years. The suggestion that Chappick needed help irritated Chappick and contributed to a frosty relationship between him and Iger that continued to this day, observers said. Some insiders criticized Chappick for nursing that resentment, saying he should have dutifully filled the role of apprentice because it was Iger who had tapped him for the top job and was Iger who transformed the company, taking it from a $47 billion enterprise to a more than $250 billion behemoth. People close to Iger said the longtime chief simply wanted to be a resource for Chappick. But for Chappick, it seemed that Iger would get out of the wouldn't get out of the way, one former executive said. Chappick also failed to shake an image that he was simply an executive from the theme parks division, one who lacked a broad understanding or of or appetite for the fine points of running a creative enterprise that produced such hits as The Mandalorian or FX's American Horror Story. The handling of the Scarlett Johansson Black Widow dispute in July of 2021 left in Hollywood with a sour taste. Disney's public statement suggested that one of the few female stars of the Marvel Universe was being greedy after Disney decided to release the movie on its streaming service, Disney Plus, rather than theaters, as envisioned when the contract was struck. Hollywood agents, producers, and some executives in the company chafed at Johansson's treatment and the lawsuit that followed, an embarrassment for a company that had long prided itself for, uh, for talent relations. Bob Chappick is a very good guy, but he was in over his head, said Jeffrey A. Sonnenfield, a senior associate dean of the Yale School of Management. And he had a very slow, t- uh, a very slow taking charge process that didn't serve him well. The timetable is usually eight months for an insider. For an outsider, it often takes two years. But Iger was still there, and so this process was slow, Sonnenfield added. Eager to restructure the company and streamline operations, Chappick designed a sweeping reorganization that centralized power in a longtime ally, Kareem uh, Daniel. Daniel, a former consumer products chief, uh, was put in charge of global strategy for the company's streaming services. It was also the gatekeeper for financial decisions made by creative executives, which caused friction over priorities and budget. In his first move, Iger announced Monday that he would unwind Chappick's centralized structure. Daniel, Iger said, left the company. Iger was executive chairman for 22 months of Chappick's reign. Even before Iger exited at the end of last December, several of his closest advisors announced that uh, they would retire, including communications chief Zenia Mucha and Disney general counsel and secretary Alan Braverman, who had joined Disney in 1993. Chaffick brought in a former BP oil executive, Jeff Morrow, as his new communications and government relations chief. Morrell, a former Pentagon press secretary, who also worked as a journalist at ABC News, also had a large portfolio. And he tried to manage the company's response to Florida's parental rights and education law, which critics derisively nicknamed Don't Say Gay Legislation. After weeks of staying silent on the legislation, Chappick reversed course and condemned the bill, handing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a win. 
the governor blasted Disney, saying Florida would not bend to a woke company. DeSantis moved to have Disney's special self-governing status near Orlando revoked. He pulled something off that very few people could have done. He managed to offend both the DeSantis and MAGA crowd and also the civil liberties crowd, Sonnenfield said. It was handled so badly that he alienated both communities. Morrill lasted just three months. Six weeks later, in a move viewed as an effort to consolidate his power, Chappuck summoned Disney's powerful head of television, Peter Rice, to his office and fired him, saying he wasn't a good fit. Rice had joined Disney as part of the 2019 takeover of much of Rupert Murdoch's Hollywood holdings. The Disney insider said Chappuck felt Rice had undermined him. He was frequently mentioned as a possible successor should Chappuck get the boot. Disney's board supported Chappuck and gave him a new three-year deal, just days before Netflix reported a loss in customers, a seismic jolt to the industry. Suddenly, Wall Street was less enamored with the heavy losses media companies in industry-wide were incurring to build their own streaming services. Activist shareholders began criticizing Chappuck and his decisions, even suggesting that Disney sell ESPN. The final straw came this month when Disney started its fiscal fourth quarter earnings call with analysts touting the wonders of the company only to reveal that Disney had lost $1.5 billion on its streaming services, including Disney Plus, and the company might miss subscriber projections if a recession occurs. Chappuck's next move was to announce cost-cutting and layoffs, alarming employees. We literally learned from the press that there would be layoffs coming, one insider said. By this month, calls for changes at the top had grown to a roar. CNBC's Jim Cramer went on a tear, saying Chappuck needed to be fired. The board must have, must have said, we need somebody like Bob Iger, Cole said. And then they said, well, what about Bob Iger? That was Behind the Swift Ouster of Disney CEO by Meg James from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22, 2022. Time Stuff writer Ryan Founder contributed to this report. All right, here is a little follow-up article from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22, 2022. Investors bless Disney's Iger sequel. Shares rise 6.3% after entertainment giant brings back former CEO. His first move is a major overhaul by Stephen Battaglio and Ryan Founder. While Disney's CEO's returning chief executive Bob Iger wasted no time putting a stamp on the company, announcing plans for a major overhaul of the Burbank entertainment giant. In a Monday afternoon memo to employees, Iger said that Kareem Daniel, head of Disney's controversial Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution Unit, would be leaving the company. Over the coming weeks, we will begin implementing organizational and operating changes within the company, said Iger. It is my intention to restructure things in a way that honors and respects creativity as the heart and soul of who we are. Daniel had been elevated to one of the most powerful positions in Disney Disney by his former boss, Bob Chappick, who was ousted Sunday night in a stunning move by Disney's board. Many executives complained that they lost their autonomy when he was promoted in October of 2020. So far, Wall Street has supported the dramatic leadership change inside America's most famous entertainment company. Shares of Disney surged Monday on the news that Iger is returning as chief executive. 
they closed up $5.78 or 6.3% at $97.58. Chapek's exit was partly blamed on the company's most recent lackluster earning report. Disney recently announced cost cuts, including a hiring freeze. Media analyst Michael Nathanson praised the re- uh, return of Iger, raising his rating on the Disney stock to outperform buy. He stuck with a streaming vision that was backwards, that was driven by subscriber growth and not profitability, Nathanson told CNBC on Monday. Iger ran Disney from 2005 to 2020, then served as the company's executive chairman through 2021 when he retired. Under his new deal, he will be chief executive for the next two years and will be tasked with finding a successor. Nathanson said Iger would be up to the task of making tough decisions needed uh, to deal with the ongoing uh, decline of of Disney's paid TV business and putting its streaming service on a path to profitability. What I like about Bob Iger, he's been direct, he's been honest, Nathanson said. He'll make tough choices. There are tough choices here as far as the assets they have and the investment they need. Nathanson said Chapek was not willing to deal with reality, which is what happened in the, uh, uh, in the analyst call, and it all blew up in his face. But he added that Iger will have some challenges the second time around at Disney. It's going to be a different regime than when he first started, Nathanson said. He has to cut things. He has to look at the portfolio and really make some hard decisions. Disney announced last week, that it lost $1.5 billion in its last financial quarter on its streaming services, which have added subscribers without approaching profitability. Chaffet declared that the fourth quarter represented the peak of Disney's losses in streaming as the company prepared to raise prices and add a Disney Plus tire with advertising. Just days later, Chaffet sent a memo to Disney leadership calling for cost-cutting measures, including layoffs, and a hiring freeze. CNBC commentator and Mad Money host Jim Cramer was not impressed, calling for Chapek's firing during his November 9 appearances on the network. Video clips were shown when CNBC covered the story on Monday. Cramer compared Chapek to an NFL coach who loses too many games. Cramer was especially critical of the way Chapek handled the poor earnings performance on the call with financial analysts. He made it sound like it was a four-star quarter, Kramer said. Delusional. Uh, called for Cha- Kramer called for Chapek to be fired. Wasn't the, uh, wasn't the reason that he was ousted, one longtime Disney observer said. But Kramer was able to crystallize the market's impatience with Chapek and help frame the issue for the board, the source said. Disney stock has dropped more than 40% in 2022 after starting the year after at nearly $160 a share. The company is valued at $164 billion. While he was CEO, Iger 71 grew Disney's market capitalization from $47 billion to $257 billion. That was Investors Bless Iger, Disney's Iger sequel by Stephen Battaglio and Ryan Founder from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22, 2022. Time staff writer Meg James contributed to this report. All right, and here is an article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22, 2022. Can Iger bring magic back? 
The returning C Disney CEO is welcomed by Wall Street but still faces challenges by Ryan Founder. Bob Iger's return to the Walt Disney Company was greeted with glee by Wall Street and Hollywood's creative community. His 15-year tenure leading Disney, which included the landmark acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and 21st Century Fox, made the industry believe he had an almost magic touch. But Iger's return, coupled with the sudden dispatching of his hand-picked successor Bob Chapek on Sunday, is no fairy tale ending. The company Iger is taking over is not the same as it was when he stepped down as chief executive in early 2020. And Iger, who officially began his brief retirement at the end of 2021, faces numerous challenges as he attempts to restart Disney's glory, from turning a profit on streaming to plotting a future for ESPN to navigating a, a possible recession that could clobber tourism. Under Chapek, the Burbank entertainment giant was dramatically reoriented around streaming during the COVID-19 pandemic in a way that caused angst among executives and talent, dimmed morale, and sacrificed enormous sums of money to grow subscriptions for Disney+. Top executives bailed or were shown the door. Iger on Monday told staff he would enact his own restructuring of the company to put more decision-making back in the hands of our creative teams, which will effectively unwind Chappick's controversial 2020 reorganization. With his return, Iger must contend with the gloomy economic climate, continued declines in, a, in TV ratings, accelerated cord cutting, and a stock market that has soured on the fiercely competitive streaming business. The company has lost 40% of its stock market value since January. Perhaps even most important and troubling is a sense that Disney's unparalleled brand has taken a hit. Chapek's reputation suffered from, the, from flubs, including a legal battle with Scarlett Johansson over box office bonuses and a political melee with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over the state's parental rights and education law known to LGBTQ activists as Don't Say Gay legislation. Initiatives to boost theme park profits, profits such as charging uh, fees for fast access to attractions, left guests feeling squeezed. A decision to move 2,000 employees to Florida upset staff at a company where reputation matters more than it does for the typical Fortune 500 enterprise. It's just a little bit of a sigh of relief that things are going to be a little bit more positive and productive from the CEO suite, said Brian Mulberry, client portfolio manager at Chicago-based Zacks Investment Management, which holds Disney stock. It's a very difficult time for Bob Iger to step back in, but to com be completely candid, I don't know that anybody else would be better at this, at this moment in time. Disney did not make executives available for comment. That's that no one, including Disney's board of directors, had, had yet identified another executive to lead Disney is its own problem, analysts said. Disney's board of directors said on Sunday that Iger would return to the CEO job for two years during which he would groom a successor. The board has concluded that as Disney embarks on an increasingly complex period of industry transformation, Bob Iger is uniquely situated to lead the company through this pivotal period, said Susan Arnold, Disney's chairman, who will keep that title, in a, in a written statement. Iger struck a reassuring tone in his first email to staff Sunday. 
I know this company has asked so much of you during the past three years, and these times certainly remain quite challenging. But as you have heard me say before, I am an optimist, he said. Iger himself took over from Michael Eisner in 2005 during a period of major turmoil for the company. Iger delayed his own retirement multiple times, passing over potential successors like former Chief Operating Officer Tom Staggs before settling on Chappick, known to be a skilled business operator and a three-decade Disney veteran, if not a visionary leader. Disney typically promotes from within, and there are few, if any, people who could credibly take, over, take the mantle from Iger. One question is how Iger will unwind controversial changes that Chappick made to the company during his not-quite-three years at the top. In a key early move, Chappick put his mark on Disney with a restructuring that concentrated power under a team led by Kareem Daniel, a longtime Chappick deputy. Daniel's unit, known as Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution, or DMED, pronounced DMED, held enormous influence deciding which projects would go to Disney+, Hulu, theaters, or Disney's broadcast and cable channels, including ABC and Freeform. That decision was supposed to accelerate the company's shift to, uh, to streaming. But it mainly caused internal friction and resentment from leaders who felt that their autonomy was slipping away. Iger wasn't in favor of the reorg, and creatives hated it, said Rich Greenfeld, an analyst at Lightshed Partners. In one of his first acts, Iger announced to DMED employees Monday that the company would be restructuring again and that Daniel would be leaving the company. It is my intention to restructure things in a way that honors and respects creativity as the heart and soul of who we are, Iger wrote. As you know, this is a time of enormous change and challenges in our industry, and our work will also focus on creating a more efficient and cost-effective structure. Immediately following Iger's return, producers who requested anonymity to preserve relationships began pining for the reinstatement of Peter Rice, the respected and talent-friendly former Fox executive who was fired in June. Rice, who served as chairman of television at Disney, was one of the executives who bristled under the new structure. Disney elevated Rice's former number two, Dana Walden, to the top TV role. Rice, Walden, and Daniel did not return requests for comment. One of Iger's biggest tasks will be to assess Disney's all-important streaming business. Iger's original plan for Disney Plus when it launched in November 2019 was to cater to Disney fans with its well-known brands Pixar, Disney Animation, Star Wars, Marvel superheroes, expecting it to reach up to 90 million subscribers by fiscal 2024. As streaming surged amid the pandemic, Chappick expanded Disney Plus's purview uh, to include more general audience shows like Blackish and Dancing with the Stars in hopes of reaching much loftier uh, targets. Disney Plus added 12.1 million subscribers during the most recent quarter, bringing its total to 164 million after less than three years. Analysts, though, worried about Disney's Disney diluting its brand. We would hope and expect that Mr. Iger examines the investment plans at Disney Plus and refocuses their investment on areas of franchise strength and away from broader general entertainment content, said analyst Michael Nathanson in a note to clients. It's not obvious 
how Iger would defy problems in streaming that have also dogged Disney's rivals as experts question whether streaming is worth the cost. Market leader Netflix, for example, paired its spending as investors got skittish. Disney's direct-to-consumer business, including Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, lost $1.5 billion in the most recent fiscal quarter. In one of his final moves as CEO, Chappick emailed Disney leaders to call for cost-cutting measures, including layoffs. Disney Plus is also raising its prices and launching a version with commercials. Iger picked his exit time optimally because he got the credit for subscriber growth with, uh, without ever having to deliver on profitability, said Doug Krutz, an analyst at Cowan & Company. Now he has to deliver on profitability, and that's challenging no matter who's in charge. Iger may, may make even more radical changes, having recently said that uh, traditional cable and satellite TV is headed for a precipice. ESPN makes money but suffers from cord cutting and escalating costs for sports rights. But Disney has consistently rebuffed speculation that it would spin off ESPN despite pressure from investors. Dan Loeb of hedge fund Third Point LLC this year renewed his call on Disney to rid itself of ESPN, though he later backtracked. Disney has to contend with a balance sheet burdened with debt from the acquisition of entertainment assets from Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, Iger's capstone to a career of splashy deal-making. He also inherits a quandary of what to do with Hulu, of which Comcast Corp. still owns a third. Then there's the matter of inflation, and a, po a possible recession hurting consumer demand. What's he supposed to do, Kruitz asked, cut costs more, raise prices more? One thing Iger immediately brings is a sense of stability. Dealing with talent egos and political quagmires requires the kind of finesse at which Iger excelled. Disney fans feel a deep emotional attachment and sense of ownership that spans generations and national borders. The stock rose 6% to $97.56 on Monday. Stability is a huge thing, Mulberry said. Iger left a great culture that was very positive and productive, but that's not the culture that's there now. Can he resuscitate that and bring it back to that type of a feeling? If the answer is yes, and we start to see some immediate improvements in that regard, that would give us a better outlook going forward. That was Can Iger Bring Magic Back? by Ryan Founder from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, November 22, 2022. Time Stuff writer Meg James contributed to this report. Alright, here's another one. From the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. Will Bob Iger be a Steve Jobs? Take heed, Disney. The success of Apple's boomerang CEO was exception, not rule, by Samantha Musunaga. There's something to be said about a known quantity, particularly when it comes to chief executives. It worked for Apple when the then-floundering computer company turned to its ouster, uh, turned to its ousted co-founder, Steve Jobs. Jobs reshaped the company and built it into a tech titan. It worked for Starbucks when the coffee chain brought uh, back Howard Schultz and sales increased. But will the strategy of a so-called boomerang CEO work for Walt Disney Company? 
On Sunday, the company's board announced that former chief executive Bob Iger will be returning to leave the company for a two-year stint. Not all returning CEOs do better the second time around. On average, companies that brought back a boomerang CEO had worse yearly stock performance, 10.1% lower compared with those with CEOs on their first go-around, according to a 2020 study published in the MIT Sloan Management Review. Reasons can include changes to the industry and the company itself since the CEO left. If a CEO had been gone for a lengthy period, it can mean coming back to a whole new company compared with the one they left, said Travis Howell, assistant professor of strategy at UC Irvine, who was a co-author of the 2020 study. In other words, past success is not necessarily predictive of a future, a future success. In most other boomerang cases, I would say it's not the best strategy, Howell said. But, he said, Iger's actually set up to be actually set up uh, better than most boomerang CEOs. He hasn't been gone that long. He still has some trust with stakeholders. Uh, Iger served as CEO for 15 years before stepping down in 2020. He served as the company's executive chairman until last year when he retired. Under his leadership, Disney acquired Pixar Animation Studios, Marvel Entertainment, and Lucasfilm, leading to big gains. Disney shares rose 5.8% on Monday after the announcement about Iger's return, but they retreated 1.4% on Tuesday. The initial stock market reaction indicates investors are pleased with the change and think Iger will make a difference, Craig Garthwaite, professor of strategy at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, said Monday. I don't think it's going to be a magical solution, though, he said. Iger like other Boomerang CEOs, will face new problems that weren't pre present during his last stint. For one, making uh, the Disney Plus streaming service profitable. Streaming is a much more, difficult, it's much more difficult and competitive business than Disney originally thought, and Iger will have to focus much of his attention there, Garth Wright said. Disney's success is going to rise and fall by what they are able to do with Disney Plus, he said. As you think about what is success here for Disney Plus, it's both reevaluating it as a standalone entity and its contribution to total firm profitability. Also, Iger will probably face questions about the succession plan that put now former CEO Bob Chappick in charge, and the new plan he's expected to enact. Bringing back a former CEO can raise questions about a failure of succession plans or a poor job doing it, according to the 2020 study. Bringing back a CEO is kind of like calling back a plumber, said Howell of UC Irvine. You need them to come back, but you kind of have this resentment that they should have done their job right the first time. That was Will Bob Iger be a Steve Jobs by Samantha Masunaga from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23, 2022. All right, here is another one. From the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 24th, 2022, Bob Iger's Big Challenge, Prepare Disney's Next CEO, by Ryan Founder. Bob Iger faces daunting challenges in his return to lead the Walt Disney Company. What to do about ESPN, how to make Disney Plus profitable, preserving fan loyalty at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, navigating a possible recession. But the tallest order of all may be the one that Iger, 71, has struggled with for years, coaching his own replacements. 
Disney's board will ultimately choose that company's next chief executive, though Iger, who retired as executive chairman at the end of 2021, would clearly have an influential role in the succession process. The company on Sunday said that Iger would work closely with the board in in developing a successor. That's on top of the immediate tasks requiring to required to restore Disney's glory after the sudden ousting of Iger's CEO, successor, and now predecessor, Bob Chappick. Iger and the board's previous attempts uh, at succession planning have proved unsuccessful, with Chappick's rocky tenure being just the most recent example. Iger handpicked Chappick, a skilled operator and Disney insider, of nearly three decades with the idea that Chappick would execute on the strategy that Iger set in motion, which included a major pivot to streaming. A series of missteps and a disastrous fourth quarter earnings report led uh, chairwoman Susan Arnold to tap Iger for a hero's return. The situation has echoes of the years past. In 2015, the company appeared to be grooming Disney veteran Tom Staggs for the top job. He had been promoted to Chief Operating Officer, besting another potential candidate, then Chief Financial Officer Ray Rasulo. But instead of going with what looked to be a smooth transfer of power, Disney changed course in 2016, prompting Staggs to leave the company. It's not just an Iger problem, though. Disney has been hobbled by turbulent leadership transitions for decades, dating back to when it was still a family business. Walt Disney, the company's namesake and co-founder, sometimes fought fiercely with his brother, Roy O. Disney. After Walt died, it was up to Roy to shepherd his brother's legacy. Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law, was forced out as CEO in 1984 and the company's flagging, amid the company's flagging performance. Later, Roy E. Disney, Roy O.'s son, led a shareholder revolt with former board member Stanley Gold, leading to the early exit of Michael Eisner in 2005 after a 21-year run. Though Eisner had blessed Iger's ascent to the top, he was reluctant to leave. In the entire history of the company, there hasn't really been one smooth succession, said Jeffrey A. Sonnenfeld, a senior associate associate dean at the Yale School of Management. They've never been great at that part of the management equation. There are clear reasons why Disney's leadership uh, transitions have been so hazardous. Leading Disney requires multiple skills. Those include the ability to manage creative types while operating a multifaceted business with theme parks, cruise lines, merchandising, theatrical films, a sports cable network ESPN, a major broadcaster ABC, and several streaming services. A Disney CEO also needs to stay on top of global politics and technological changes in the industry, all while demonstrating financial acumen. That's a rare combination of abilities for one person to have. Hollywood and corporate America viewed both Iger and Eisner not just as suits, but as visionaries. And Disney became only more complex under Iger particularly after the company in 2019 acquired the entertainment assets of Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, through which it subsumed a storied film studio, a massive TV production operation, and a major stake in Hulu. The size and scope of the firm, plus persistent red ink in streaming 
and declines in traditional television ratings and cable subscriptions made make Disney a difficult beast for anyone to wrangle. It's a massively complex entertainment enterprise, said Craig Garthrate, professor of strategy at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And so part of finding a successor is finding out what's the right size of the company for that successor to run. Disney said Iger was not available for comment. This time, the board has given itself just two years to pick a replacement before Iger's contract ends. Identifying and developing someone in that time frame won't be easy. The company has few, if any, executives left who could step in right away. Disney has typically shied from bringing in outsiders, preferring to promote people who already understand the inner workings of the company, which has its own unique politics and ethos. Longtime Disney observers still draw lessons from the decision to bring in CAA's Michael Ovitz as president under Eisner, a disaster that resulted in a reported payout of $140 million for Ovitz after his firing. Iger's team includes multiple cable executives. There's Alan Bergman, chairman of Disney's studio content business. Dana Walden, who leads the television unit. James Pitaro, chairman of ESPN and Sports. Theme park stopper Josh DiMario and CFO Christine McCarthy. But all would need to be built up before taking the mantle. And one of his first moves as returning CEO, Iger, on Monday, at test Bergman, Walden, Pitaro, and McCarthy with restructuring Disney's media and entertainment business, essentially unwinding a controversial structure Chappick established that separated content decisions from, distri- uh, from distribution strategy. As part of the sweeping initiative, Iker ousted Kareem Daniel, Chappick's longtime deputy who ran Disney Entertainment and Media Distribution, known as DMED. Other options exist, but would be complicated. Former Fox TV executive Peter Rice was seen as a potential replacement for Chappick, but Chappick fired him in June with little explanation. If Disney wanted to bring back Staggs or Kevin Mayer, who exited after being passed over in favor of Chappick, it likely would have to acquire their startup company, uh, Candle Media. Longtime CEOs have come back from retirement before and managed to set up their replacements for success. A floundering Apple turned to its ousted co-founder, Steve Jobs, to reshape the company, eventually setting the stage for Tim Cook to step in just weeks before Jobs died of cancer. Starbucks brought back Howard Schultz twice, in 2008 and as interim chief this year, before appointing Laxman Narezaman as its next leader. Still, there's nagging questions of whether Iger will actually leave in two years, having delayed his retirement several times even before the Chappick swap. In January, Iger told uh, told journalist Kara Swisher that rumors of his eventual boomerang to Disney were ridiculous. You can't go home again, he said. I'm gone. Sonnefield said he thinks Iger means it this time. He really had the attitude uh, of been there, done that, Sonnefield said. Now, where have we heard that before? That was Bob Iger's Big Challenge, Preparing Disney's Next CEO by Ryan Founder. From the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 24th, 2022. 
And we finally have this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, November 24th, 2022. Iger's back, call it destiny. Dramatic return of Disney's former boss was, ine was inevitably of his own making by Matt Pierce. One of the basic economic arguments for why CEO pay needs to be mon uh, monarchically high is that the talent pool for would-be saviors is a, millimeter, is a millimeter deep. After all, on paper anyway, the only people qualified to run a world-spanning entertainment company are the ones who have already done it. This is the part of the American corporate feedback loop where mediocrity begets dynasty in which Iger begets Iger. Reinstalled as chief executive after a palace coup inside the Cinderella castle over the weekend, Bob Iger, who ran Walt Disney Company for 15 years until leaving in 2020, is already sweeping away the trappings of his successor, Bob Chappick. After just one day on the job, Iger dismissed one of Chappick's top lieutenants, Karim Daniel, and announced plans to unwind a Chappick reorganization that had alienated creative heads. It is my intention to restructure things in a way that honors and respects creativity as the heart and soul of who we are, Iger wrote employees. The sighs of relief were practically audible, and Disney stock jumped 6.3% after the change in command. The Iger restoration has an escape from Elba cast to it, in which even stupefied competitors have to acknowledge the great conqueror's reappearance. Ugh. Netflix chief executive Reed Hastings tweeted, I had been hoping Iger would run for president. He's amazing. Although Iger's return shocked Hollywood watchers when the news first landed, as recently as two months ago, Iger was saying he didn't miss running Disney. The decision already seems inevitable in retrospect. Iger had built Disney into a behemoth during his reign, uh, gobbling up Pixar, Marvel Entertainment, Lucasfilm, and 21st Century Fox to add the company's treasurer pile of ESPN, ABC, and its theme park business. Disney watchers had marveled at many of these deals. Yet Iger's biggest responsibility as leader was to find a successor who could master the world he created, and he failed. Thus, it is written that the great builder Iger created even the sorry conditions requiring his return. Insiders said trouble had been brewing since Chappick 62, uh, around Chappick 62, since he took over in February 2020 and was buffeted by forces for, uh, far greater than himself. There was the COVID-19 pandemic and the accompanying closures that appended American businesses, turning Disney's packed theme parks into potential pathogenic kill zones. Then Disney got squeezed between the political movements of social progressivism and right-wing reaction in Florida, where Chappaq drew fire from both progressives and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis over the company's position on the so-called don't-say-gay law in state schools. The pivot to streaming has been an especially troubling one, with the, with the whole industry facing a crunch as cord-cutting from traditional moneymakers like TV and cable accelerates. Investors were stunned this year when Netflix lost subscribers for the first time in more than a decade. Maybe there wasn't as much profit in the business to be had as originally thought. In the last financial quarter, Paramount, Peacock, and Warner Brothers, Discovery, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery each lost hundreds of millions of dollars in efforts to expand streaming audiences.
Disney's own direct-to-consumer division, which includes Disney+, Hulu, and ESPN+, lost $1.5 billion. In one of the most heated, uh, head-turning episodes, Disney's streaming pivot inv- instigated a highly public scrape with Scarlett Johansson after it co-released Black Widow in theaters and on Disney+, potentially cutting her pay, which was tied to box office performance. Chappick said the company was trying to navigate a pandemic-era entertainment environment with artist contracts that had been negotiated years earlier, during Iger's reign. All this, and with a broader economic slowdown looming as the Federal Reserve tries to slam the door on inflation, that's a, that's a lot for any leader to deal with, not just Chappick. And then there's the fact that there's, uh, there's little more dangerous to new CEO's longevity than to have a respected predecessor lingering in the parking lot. Iger's delayed retirement as CEO for years, and Iger delayed retirement as CEO for years, and he remained on Disney's board even after handling handing off the reins to Chappick. Iger's presence there as executive chairman through last December reportedly irritated Chappick, perhaps not irrationally so. One business study found that a CEO is 40% more likely to get fired when a predecessor is sitting on the board. More than 10% of the companies analyzed for the, for the study rehired old chief executives. Even old bosses can have lean and hungry looks. Boomerang CEOs, however, have mixed records. But with recession looming and political uncertainty continuing to frack the uh, country's state of mind, it's definitely been, uh, been comeback season lately. And not just at Disney. Donald Trump, 76, in one of the least surprising political developments of the last two years, has announced that he plans to run for president again after voters narrowly hurled him out of the White House in 2020. The man Trump is trying to replace, Joe Biden, 80, is himself a throwback figure from the Obama years, whose age Democratic voters were willing to overlook because he represented stability. In the business world, and uh, one of America's largest consumer chains, Starbucks, whose feel-good corporate image has gotten debunked by its workers' unionization drive, resumed Howard Schultz this spring for a third stint as CEO. Even at Elon Musk's turbulent Twitter, the only real changes um, users can encounter so far are the restoration of long-familiar accounts for figures like Trump and Kanye West, who'd been banned after the previous ownership tied up their inflammatory antics. Marx wrote that great personages and events appear twice in history, the first time as tragedy, the second as farce. His predecessor, Hegel, had a slightly different take. The first time was chance, the second, destiny. Hopefully, somewhere in this parade of rerun CEOs and exhaustively exploited and re-exploited IP, somebody does something new. But even, but given that the top 10 rosing movies of 2022 so far are all sequels or derivatives of existing characters, we seem stuck with what we've already got. Hope you like it. It feels like destiny. That was Iger's Back, Call It Destiny by Matt Pierce from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 24th, 2022. Let's turn to some entertainment news. Here's an article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. In Spielberg's image, 
playing the legend under his direction in The Fablemans, No Pressure, by Josh Rottenberg. When Gabriel LaBelle landed the role of Sammy Fableman in Steven Spielberg's autobiographical new film The Fablemans, playing a version of the filmmaker in his teenage years, he figured he'd probably show up in the movie's second act and then disappear after a handful of scenes. After all, it's not as if Hollywood's all-time highest-grossing director was about to play a huge chunk of his life story in the hands of a complete unknown, right? Then LaBelle received the script. I started folding the page of each scene I was in, and then I just stopped folding pages because I was in everything, the 20-year-old LaBelle said on a recent morning as he sat next to an Indiana Jones pinball machine in the game room of Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment production office. Nobody told me that. Nobody said anything. That's when nerves kicked in. You don't want to be the guy that screws up Steven Spielberg's life. The most personal introspective movie in Spielberg's long fabled th uh, film filmography, The Fablemans, which, explains, which expands the theater's nationwide Wednesday and is widely considered an Oscar frontrunner, explores the loving but dysfunctional family that shaped the filmmaker and the burgeoning passion for cinema that eventually uh, propelled him to fame. By turns tender and bittersweet, the film centers on the disillusion of the director's parents' marriage, with Michelle Williams playing a version of his free-spirited mother and Paul Dano as a kind-hearted engineer based on Spielberg's father. But it's, uh, but it's through the eyes of LaBelle's Sammy that much of the story unfolds. To find the teenage Sammy, Spielberg and his team cast a wide net, considering more than 2,000 young actors. LaBelle's audition tape, which he shot with his character actor father Ron, arrived relatively late in the casting process and immediately rose to the top of the pile. Despite LaBelle's lack of professional experience, his most notable big screen role was a bit part in 2018's The Predator, Spielberg saw in the young actor a more self-possessed version of his own awkward teenage self. The challenge of casting actors to play my parents was not as difficult as casting someone to represent myself, said Spielberg, who co-wrote the film's script with regular collaborator Tony Kushner. I can't be objective about my mom and dad, but, uh, but no one can be really objective about themselves. Gabe was more of the me of my imagination, so much cooler than I ever thought I was at that same age. When LaBelle was born in 2002, Spielberg was already 20 films deep into his career as a living legend. And a living legend. For the aspiring actor and self-professed movie nerd growing up in Vancouver, Spielberg's movies were fun, fun, foundational texts. Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, I had the toys, video games, DVDs, LaBelle said. Then as I got older, I started diving into Close Encounters, Empire of the Sun, Schindler's List, the list goes on and on. I wasn't around to experience the effect he had on the culture in real time, but I still realize what a big deal it is. To prepare for the role, LaBelle spent weeks immersing himself in Spielberg's childhood 8mm films and his formative creative influences, particularly the works of director John Ford, who makes an appearance in late in The Fablemans, played by David Lynch. He studied Spielberg's mannerisms down to the smallest detail. I figured out his small covers more than uh, more of his teeth than mine. Over a series of Zoom conversations before shooting began, LaBelle probed Spielberg about what in the script had really happened 
and what was fiction trying to understand what makes him what made him tick. Essentially, everything in the Fablements he came to learn was drawn from the director's life, from the uh, marital infidelity that tore his family apart to his mother's pet monkey. One minor exception, Salmon's devoutly Christian high school girlfriend in the film was actually based on someone Spielberg had dated slightly earlier, in seventh grade. It was just the two of them on Zoom, really getting to know each other, says Spielberg's producing partner, Christy Mokosko-Krieger. Steven said, I felt like he was deposing me, but I, would, but I think they really enjoyed the, that time together. Steven had the ability, has that ability to relate to and direct young people. It's just something he was born with. As they got acquainted, Spielberg said he was just trying to answer LaBelle's questions the best he could. I left it to him to decide how much he wanted to be like me, Spielberg said. He has such a natural ease and is so at home in his own skin, and you never catch him acting or, in this, or in this case, trying to impersonate me. Above all, I trusted him, and I didn't want to get in the way of what I knew he could bring to the role. Though, uh, though separated in age by more than half a century from the 75-year-old Spielberg, LaBelle related to the filmmaker in some fundamental ways. There are a lot of similarities I could understand, he says. We're both Jewish. We're both kind kids of divorce. We both love films. Throughout the film, Sammy is going through a lot of firsts that I'm not so far ahead of. The perspective change of seeing your parents as people for the first time, that's something I was new to as well. On set, LaBelle did his best to hide how intimidated he was by the far more experienced heavy hitters all around him. And Seth Rogen, who plays a close family friend who had an, has an affair with Williams' Mitzi, LaBelle found something of a, kind, a kindred spirit. We're both curly-headed headed Jewish actors from Vancouver who smoked weed in high school, LaBelle says. Like, what's not to love? Rogan says he had no inkling of how nervous LaBelle was while shooting the film. Gabe was shockingly confident, Rogan says. I remember t uh, I talked to his brother at the Toronto International Film Festival premiere, and he was telling me how much anxiety Gabe was having as we were making the movie. And I was like, wow, you would n have never known. It shows what a good actor he is. Since the film's premiere in September, LaBelle's life has been a whirlwind of screenings and interviews. It's overwhelming because I haven't done anything like it before, he says. I'm learning how to navigate through these awkward experiences and interactions, how to find out if someone's actually interested in what you're saying or if they're only talking to you because they think you sh they should. That's a lot to be put into. Indeed. It's hard to imagine a better, a better calling card for a young actor than playing a version of Spielberg in a Spielberg film. But while LaBelle has set aside his plans of college, he is trying to stay sane and grounded. I've been spoiled rotten by this, he says. You would assume every filmmaker is going to watch this movie because every filmmaker alive has been inspired by Steven Spielberg. I don't know what I'm doing next, but I will say I have confidence that something will come. Whatever happens, LaBelle has already experienced the ultimate validation. He made Steven Spielberg cry. There were definitely moments that Spielberg got emotional on the set, watching these deep memories displayed in front of him, LaBelle says. There were certain scenes that when we finished filming, we'd all just do a big group hug. It was intense, 
but selfishly, whenever he would cry, I thought I did exactly what he needed to help him process these things. I did my part. That was In Spielberg's Image by Josh Roddenberg from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 23, 2022. It's called The Fablemans. Rated PG-13 for some strong language, thematic elements, brief violence, and drug use. Running time, 2 hours, 31 minutes. Playing in general release. Now let's turn to a couple of articles from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 17, 2022. This is called Director Orders All the Sides. Noah Baumbach wanted Denny Elfman to score white noise by tapping into his wild rocker gothic and emotional elements by Tim Grieving. Noah Baumbach has ne- had never worked with Denny Elfman before, but he'd pegged the composer well enough to think of him for white noise. He said, Danny, I've got the perfect film for you. It's all about fear of death and how we deal with it. It's right up your alley. Based on the 1985 novel by Don De Lilo, Baumbach's film stars Adam Driver as Jack Gladney, a college professor of Hitler's studies, and Greta Gerwig as his wife Babette in an eccentric portrait of American culture in the 1980s. It's a heightened, almost impossible to define story about the false promises of the modern supermarket and pharmaceuticals and the inevitable destruction of humanity. You might say it's a romantic comedy, apocalyptic, midlife crisis, murder, thriller, dance party. It was so cool to come on a project like this that had no genre to define what it was, Elfman says. To me, nothing is more exciting. It was, so, uh, it was just death anxiety that Bombach recognized in Elfman. He sees in every facet of the composer's split musical personality. Both the wild rock and roller from Oingo Boingo and the zany gothic music act in Tim Burton's cinematic circus, but also the sweet and dramatic serenader of such serious films as Goodwill Hunting and Milk. I felt like we, well, we went for it here. We should go for it in all departments, Baumbach says. Because it has an elevated tone, the music only helps that, and I think Danny's music sinuates the audience in important ways throughout the movie because it's maybe surprising how it shifts in tones. Baumbach felt that Elfman's own 1980s roots fit the story's zeitgeist, and in his varied work for Burton, the music is both taking the moments very seriously. But there's an inherent sense of humor I find in Danny's work. The director temporarily used Aaron Copeland's music in the college scenes, and he propelled fusing, proposed fusing Copeland Americana with 80s electronica scores by the likes of uh, Tangerine Dream. Elfman giddily start, started composing pieces inspired by those ingredients before he saw a frame of film, and by the time Baumbach showed him a rough cut, it had already had nearly 20 minutes of his original ideas on the soundtrack. Elfman then divided Baumbach and his editor invited Bombach and his editor Matthew Hannum to move into his Los Angeles studio. It was really cool, Elfman says, because I was coming up with ideas and I would just go knock, knock, knock and get instant input. It was a very fertile period of time. Echoing the film, the score is a madcap blend of tones. At first, it's an upbeat classical ode to academia, 
conveying the idealized larger-than-life college where Jack rhapsodizes about Hitler and Don Cheadle's character sermonizes on Elvis and the art of the cinematic car crash. Elfman's cues are appropriately theatrical without getting too silly. Then it turns into a doomsday disaster film, and Elfman's score goes huge and heavy to accompany the dark toxic cloud that appears in the area and causes panic along with a breathless car chase. The synthesized homage to Tangerine Dream, where I just really get to cut loose and have such a blast, drives much of the final act as Jack pursues a mysterious man who has further interrupted the peace in his life. But as wild as cata- and cataclysmic as the story gets, its heart also beats with the relationship between Jack and Babette. There was early on a, there was early on a scene of just the two of them in bed talking, Elfman says, and that was a very informative scene. He responded with a love theme for a clarinet and strings and tried to keep it really simple and sweet because to me, their relationship really was. Bombach says he was struck by how beautiful and romantic the, that music was, and how it then expanded to accompany a confession scene that threatened to break the heart of their relationship, where Danny's music was just very generous and beautiful. The director has had an evolving relationship with music in his films, from the subtle naturalistic days of the squid and the whale to using retro French film music in Francis Ha to inviting Randy Newman to write an unabashedly romantic score for a marriage story. He believes it's all trended towards this, the most outrageous theatrical and at times absurd film and score of his career. It's all very complex, says Bombach, and I love that it has this really great combination of orchestral and synthetic which was the thing we talked about throughout the movie. The movie essentially plays in all of these different contrasts. You know, the natural world versus the commercial plastic world. And Danny really embraced that musically. Both men said they would love to work together again, although Bombach notes, I probably will never have a movie with such a varied tones. Which means he'll have to confine himself to just one of Danny Elfman's personalities next time. Said Bombach, will find creative ways to get around it. And that was Director Orders All the Sides by Tim Grieving. And this one is called Heart Encased in a Shell. Jenny Slate and Dean Fleischer Kemp's Marcel with Shoes On tells a positive human story in a whimsical, respectful way by Michael Ardonia. The news is bad. The world feels too hot or too cold. And maybe the midterm elections didn't go your way. It's going to be okay. Marcel, the shell with shoes on, is, uh, is the tonic we all need. Sweet makes it sound too simple. There's a genuine positive vibe to the animated feature, but it also treats its tiny, tiny stop-motion subjects, shells, not snails, by the way, with si- uh, tender sincerity. There's a story in the fake documentary, director and co-writer Dean Fleischer-Camp tellingly dislikes the term mockumentary, but the film isn't plot-driven. There's plenty of struggle for the titular uh, striving shell, but there's no antagonist. Some of my favorite movies have no antagonist, notes Camp. Isn't the inside of of one's own mind enough of an adversary, asked co-writer and star Jenny Slate, the Saturday Night Live and Zootopia alum as both laugh? 
young Marcel Slate and his grandmother, Nana Connie Isabella Rosalina, perfectly cast, are the only ones left since a calamity took the rest of the family away. Human documentary filmmaker Dean, played by Camp, beard in heard in contest with conversations with Marcel, but mostly unseen, has moved into the house for humans and is shooting interviews with Marcel. Through their burgeoning friendship, a possibility arises to find Marcel's family. But really, the film is an extended hangout with the exceedingly pleasant little person as he shows us around his inventive adaptations to his world and muses about life. As Slate puts it, all of the daily glories and pains of being an individual in your environment. Camp says we want to tell a real, as authentic as possible documentary portrait of a character who just happens to not be real. I wanted to extend him the same respect and dignity you would to any documentary subject. Slate and Kemp, when they were romantic partners, were bunking with others at a wedding around 2010. The minute matter-of-fact voice that would become Marcel emerged from Slate in a running commentary on the messiness of the shared room. Later, when Kemp was to animate a short for a friend's project, he asked Slate if he could interview that character for it, and a damn adorable star was born. The first time it screened, it was Brooklyn in 2011. An arms-crossed judgmental art-crowd-art art art comedy crowd, says the director. The fact that they were warmed over-over felt like this character really connects and accesses something important. Indeed, Marcel can be disarming to even the hardest-hearted. Perhaps it's because, despite having no arms, he's like a darling Robinson Crusoe in the, in the gigantic wilderness of a human's house. He's a little guy who's just trying to make it in a world that wasn't made for him, Kemp says. And we all sort of relate to that first as children, and the art form of stop-motion animation is so fallible and human. You see the fingerprints and the glue, especially with puppets this small. You get all these mistakes and this herky-jerky motion that seems to me very vulnerable. The, the character was eventually featured in three shorts that have had tens of millions of views on YouTube and in two children's books before the movie. Slate says Marcel took off on his own. The improv just kept going and growing. He never seemed like just a vehicle for one-liners. We went with what was natural. The film has many themes. It's concerns with a lot. But the reason why the story can exist at all is because the two characters that are always in conversation, the character of Dean and the character of Marcel, they have an unlikely but really functional companionship. It really f it felt real to us, and we ourselves, we have a companionship for a long time. We've known each other for a long time, and this is using it in a different way. Slade and Kemp were married from 2012 to 2016. The creative partnership preceded their marriage and has clearly survived its demise. Slate says the weirdest thing is we didn't stop working at all. They both laughed. I don't think there was a time when we were away from each other or, or, uh, or something. When I look at Dean's filmmaking now, I see all of his talents and strengths and the things that I always saw in him when I met him in our early 20s. One thing I'm proud of is, much like Marcel, our strength emerged and became functional in this time. Camp agrees. The engine starts up again, right the second we're in the same room talking about the character. 
I never worry it will atrophy because it feels so foundational to me. The two also credit their co-writer, uh, Nick Paley. He always says the best stuff, says Slate, with helping them understand why Marcel lands with so many people. As Camp relates, Paley said of one sense, this is the kind of truth that keeps people company. That was Heart Encased in a Shell by Michael Ordonia. And those are both articles from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 17, 2022. All right, so why don't we conclude with some ads not from the Jewish edition, but from the Jewish home for November 17th through the 30th, 2022, volume one, number four, starting with this, Prero Orthodontics. Dr. Prero making you smile more beautiful than it already is. Top 1% Diamond Plus Invisalign provider. Dovi Prero DDS MS board certified orthodontist. Phone is 310-595-2882. And we go to this one. This is Yahad. For 40 years, Yahad has been creating a world where every single Jew, regardless of ability, has a place in the community and can get the support they need to succeed in school. IVDU, uh, Summer, JUF, Our Way, and Reach. Locations in Baltimore, Cleveland, Los Angeles, New Jersey, South Florida, Chicago, Israel, New England, New York, and Toronto. Phone is 310-229-9000, extension 3. Website is... Uh, email actually is Los Angeles Yahad at OU.org. On Instagram at Yahad underscore university. Yahad, a division of the Orthodox Union. And we have this one. You want it now? You don't want any exams or blood work? Call us 323 937 1076. Email office at land. LandauInsurance.com. If you are healthy, you may qualify for life insurance protection coverage same day. Landau Insurance Brokers. And we have a, another one right here. Please join us at the second annual Chabad Golf Classic, benefiting Sea uh, Kids and Sea Teen programs, Sunday, January 22, 2023, at the Westin Rancho Mirage Golf Resort. And spa. Reserve now. 8 a.m. to 10:30 a.m. Registration and breakfast. 10:30 a.m. to 3:30 p.m. Shotgun start. Team scramble. Con- uh, 3:30 p.m. Cocktails. Fine scotch. Fine cigars. Sushi. Appetizers and music. 4:15 p.m. Helicopter ball drop. Buy a ball. Split the pot. 5 o'clock p.m. Award ceremony and sumptuous dinner. Contest prizes, raffles and lunch. The uh, title sponsor: The Coaching Financial Group. To register, call 323-770-8999 or the website www.habadgolfclassic.com. Here's something. Temi B. Jewelry. Call to schedule an appointment today. Temi 213-910-6099 or Etty 773-800-6990. Website is www temib.com and uh, and um, um, Twitter at Attorney uh, B Jewelry located in Hancock Park and we have one more right here the Linen House C 
6017 Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. Phone is 323-559-0531. Exclusively by appointment only. I think we can throw in one more right here. Western Kosher, Western Glatt Kosher, Grocery, Meat, Dairy, Fish. Good for good food knows no bounds. With Western Kosher's full takeout section, your options are endless. Our food is fresh for the kitchen and ready for your table. Website is westernkosher.com. And folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. And so, until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host wishing you shalom and, of course, peace. See you next time, everybody.